Father, we thank you for the day you've given us. We thank you for your love toward us. We thank you for your son, Christ Jesus, and his death on the cross for us. I pray, Lord, that you would forgive us of our sins. I pray that we'd look to you for our help. I pray that we'd go to you for encouragement. Holy Spirit, I pray you'd give us the power to understand this passage and the power to apply it. We can rest in you. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. Seven words for you. Abundance. Prosperity. Gospel. Giving. Receiving. Church. Profit. Said these seven words. Hopefully you've decided to stay. But what might make you want to leave is perhaps every other church you visited, you heard those same seven words every single week. Maybe you decided to be part of Grace Bible Church because we were the first church you visited that didn't ask for your money. I've heard people say that. So are we changing our policy this morning? That's the question. We're changing our mind on that policy. Now the suspense is building. Pastor Mike's on vacation. He asked me to fill in for him today. Uh, we've been working through Philippians on Sunday evenings. Um, so I just said, sure, yeah, I'll just preach the next passage in Philippians. I can fill in for you, no problem. Um, there's some unwritten rules that preachers have to follow. Uh, one rule is you can't talk about politics. Uh, second rule is you can't preach about money. And the third rule is you can't preach about money on Sunday mornings. Unwritten rules for pastors. Uh, but as it turns out, this passage is all about giving. It's undeniable whenever you get to it. So are we changing our policy? With that, I want to tell you what this is not going to be about. The sermon is not going to be about this. It's not going to be an expose of prosperity gospel ministries. Okay, It's not going to be um, confronting that head on. Um, I think that's a sermon for another church because I believe there's a reason why you've come to Grace Bible, probably because we're not a prosperity church. So we're not going to talk about that. We're also not going to have a discussion on offering plates and homeless ministries and food pantries and soup kitchens. Those, those could be good discussions, but that's going to be for a different time. That's not what we're talking about this morning. I want to start back at square one, right at the core, right at the foundation of all those discussions. I want to aim at our heart's attitude toward generosity. The passage we're going to look at today, it's actually going to turn around and look at us. It's going to expose just how closed our hearts are toward each other. And it's going to give us God's view of generosity in the church. So we are in our study on Sunday evenings at the tail end of Philippians. This is the conclusion of the letter. But there's many of you in the mor this morning that are just dropping straight into it without any context. So I want to catch you up. Um, we just finished Acts on Sunday mornings, didn't we? Uh, when we get to here in Philippians, Paul is exactly where we left him. He's sitting there in Acts 28 uh, as a Roman prisoner with chains around his wrist. That's where he is when he's writing this letter of Philippians. And he doesn't know what the verdict will be. He doesn't know if he's going to be declared innocent. He doesn't know if he's going to be declared guilty for preaching the gospel. He's just waiting. And he's taking care of believers in the meantime. He's still able to welcome visitors who come to him. He's still able to preach the gospel. So when he's sitting there in this prison, he gets a knock on the door. And it's who? It's Epaphroditus. Say, who in the world is Epaphroditus? He's one of Paul's converts, one of the guys who was around whenever he planted the church in Philippi about 10 years earlier in Acts 16. Paul, or Epaphroditus shows up and he brings Paul a gift from the church at Philippi. 
he gives a great report about how that church is partnering for the gospel and showing how they're advancing the gospel. But he also gives them a report about a problem they were having with disunity. So Paul writes a letter, sends it back with Epaphroditus, and as he's writing this letter, his main burden, his main burden as he's writing this letter to the Philippian believers is to have unity through humility for the sake of a joyful gospel partnership. He wants them to have unity, saying, I know you guys are advancing the gospel, but I, you guys have to get rid of your personal differences. You guys have to be unified for the purpose of the gospel, for the, a partnership in the gospel. So it's not primarily a letter of rebuke. He's not just hammering them this whole time. It's a letter of friendship, a letter of encouragement. He's overflowing in his joy for, over these believers because they were participating in the spread of the gospel. He's overflowing with joy. That's why he's using his word joy so many times. Because it's a joyful partnership. You have an amazing thing going. He's saying you're spreading the gospel. You're showing generosity. But you can't let your personal differences get in the way. Keep on going. That's what this letter is all about. And the only way you're going to be able to do that, the only way you're going to be able to be unified is by putting on humility. Taking on the mind of Christ. So up to this point in Philippians, he's very persuasively, he's very persuasively explained this theme all the way through chapter 3. And he gets to chapter 4. And he's applying it, applying the theme of unity and how they can do that in practical situations, this partnership in the gospel. Any of you come from a Baptist church? Only a couple. I knew it. Just a few. I knew the way was narrow. And <laughs> you know that when you eat fried chicken and mashed potatoes at home, what's it called? Dinner, right? What about if you eat fried chicken and mashed potatoes with the church? Fellowship. Now you understand. <laughs> So, when I use the word partnership, we're talking about this biblical concept of fellowship. Or you may, some of you are even Greek scholars, you know the Greek word koinonia. Anyone ever heard that word before? Yeah, several, even more than the Baptists. Okay. Yes, biblical fellowship. It's way more than eating food together. I think you know that by now. It's way more than going to Starbucks together, although that could be part of it. It's about our entire lives being bound up in the work of the gospel our full bodies being involved in the spread, the advance of the gospel together with the body of Christ. That's true biblical fellowship, and it manifests itself in all kinds of different ways, many ways. One huge part of this partnership is generosity. And this is what Paul's getting at in this passage. The Philippians were a living, breathing example of generosity for the purpose of the gospel. And this is the section where Paul really highlights this reality. So this is what Paul is taking the time to thank them for. It's almost like a thank you note here at the end of the letter. Uh, but it's more than a thank you note because Paul doesn't ever waste any opportunities. He never wastes any words. It's more than a thank you note. He's going to give them, as he's telling them thank you, a biblical perspective on generosity. So this passage turns our way of thinking about generosity on its head and gives us God's view. I'm convinced that we must gain a biblical God's view of giving and receiving within the church. We've been scarred in all kinds of different situations about giving, receiving, people asking, begging for your money. We've been scarred, but let's adopt God's view of generosity in the church. That's my prayer today, that you would adopt God's view of generosity within the body of Christ. So as we look at this passage, I want to give you Bible glasses, give you Bible glasses to put on your eyes, and I want you to see six essential perspectives that's going to challenge you to think biblically about generosity 
in the body of Christ. Six perspectives that are going to change your view on giving and receiving with other believers. Radically change your view. I tell you there's six perspectives. We're going to have to pick up the last three next week on Sunday evening because it's such a big section here. But we're going to cover the first three today. And that's going to be an unselfish concern, an unconditional contentment, and an unpopular objective. So that's what we're going to cover this morning to give us God's view of generosity. Let's look first at the unselfish concern. Perspective number one is to view the needs of others as more important than your own. And let that sink in. View the, other, view the needs of others as more important than your own needs. I am told that if you go north of Florida, that they have more than two seasons. Anyone heard that before? Yes, it's true. They have this thing called winter. And I'm told that in the wintertime, there's lots of snow. It makes everything white. And then that all melts, and it's just all gray and depressing for months on end. Have you ever experienced that before? I've maybe visited, maybe seen it for a few days, but I've never really experienced that depression. But what comes after, what comes after winter? Spring. Refreshing time, isn't it? You see the flowers bloom. You see the grass start to grow again. You see all these things. The leaves start to grow back their trees. Everything's green again. It's such a refreshing time. So enough with the flowery language. This is the type of joy that Paul has in mind when he writes this verse. Look down at verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. So what's going on in this verse? The word revived. You see the word revived? It just means to blossom again. And this is why Paul is so thrilled to hear about the believers here at Philippi and their generosity. He's thrilled. He's thrilled about what they're doing. And he says they, they were always concerned. They didn't stop being concerned. They always cared, but they didn't have an opportunity. It doesn't say why they didn't have an opportunity. Maybe Paul, he was traveling around like, like crazy. They didn't know where he was. But still, they never stopped caring about him. But then they finally came to a point where they were able to help. They were able to reveal their generosity to Paul. So he rejoiced in the Lord greatly because they were practicing what he was preaching in this letter. So what had he been preaching? He had been teaching them again that humility is what's absolutely essential for their unity in the church. Humility. And I'll define that. Humility is a mindset that regards others as more important than yourself and leads to sacrifice to others. Now let's look at a few verses that really demonstrate that. You see it all throughout Philippians. This is what Paul had been teaching these believers, Paul showed it. He said at the beginning of the letter, for it's only right for me to feel, and again, this is a mindset, really, this literally to thank, to thank this way. It's only right for me to thank this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all, you all are partakers of grace with me. And again, it's fellowship. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ. The Philippian believers, they showed it too. He's calling them to show it. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Again, literally, think the same thing. Maintaining the same love. United in spirit. Intent on one purpose. Again, literally, thinking one thing. Verse 3, do nothing from selfishness. Nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And then verse 5, have this attitude, or literally, again, think this way. 
in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So he's called the Philippians to do this. Timothy showed it again in chapter 2. For I have no one else of kindred spirit or literally like soul who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare because everyone else seeks after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Got to catch your breath. Epaphroditus showed it too. He was the one who had made the 800-plus mile trip from Philippi to where Paul was in Rome to bring him a gift. Epaphroditus demonstrated this beautifully. It says he came close to death on this trip for the work of Christ. Anyone risked your life for Christ lately? Risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Not done yet. He contrasts it with the false teachers, the enemies of the cross, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds to literally, again, thank on earthly things. Euodia and Syntyche stopped showing it. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony, or again, literally, thank the same thing in the Lord. Put on this mindset of humility. Put on the mind of Christ. So now the church as a whole, they're showing it. The Philippian believers, they were looking outside themselves, and they were seeing and meeting the needs of other people, of other believers. They were doing it. They were practicing what Paul had been preaching. So what did it look like? I do want you to turn back to Acts. It's been several years since we were in this passage. Turn back to Acts 2. I'll give you a second to get there. Acts 2, and start in verse 43. What does this generosity look like played out? in the early church. And again, I know we're reading a lot, we're looking at a lot of passages, but stick with me. You have to see this. You have to see how this early church and how the gospel changed their way of thinking. 243, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and all had things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were selling, sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. Look a couple chapters later, Acts 4, 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was of his own, or was his own. But all things were common property to them. Verse 33. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. The gospel. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of lands or houses, they would sell them, bring the proceeds of the sales, and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. And it doesn't stop. Look ahead at Acts 11, 27. Follow with me. Acts 11:27. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Verse 28. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that was, there was going to certainly be a famine over all the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas, Barnabas and Saul to the elders. That's what it looked like in the early church. A beautiful picture of generosity. And it was all stemming from gospel change. Something that happened in their hearts as they understood what Christ had done in their lives, as they understood the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ, that he did it for the forgiveness of sins, and it changed not just them on the inside, but it changed their whole outlook on life. It changed their generosity view for other believers. So the question now is, who cares? Who cares what they did back in the New Testament? We obviously don't match up, do we? 
So now, do we really care? Who cares about this? I don't think there's anything in Philippians that's more countercultural than this idea of considering other people as more important than yourselves. I can't find anything more countercultural than that. Thinking of other people actually as more important than you are. So in this room, I bet you there's two groups. I bet you there's people who profess to know Christ. But you live entirely self-absorbed lives. Deep down inside, you could not care less about other people, and you could not care less about God's view of generosity. I guarantee there's people in the room this way. You say it. Ronaldo said it this morning in his sermon. Say people just saying the right things, but deep down, do you really care? Who cares? Has anyone ever promised this? I'm never going to be like my dad. I'm never going to be like my mother. Anyone ever promised that? Probably a few of us. Has it worked? Doesn't really work, does it? Doesn't really turn out that way. Most of us can agree that for good or bad, we end up like our parents, don't we? Unfortunately and fortunately in some cases, right? So, if you're in this group, how can you claim God as your heavenly father if you don't care about his view of caring for other people? How can you claim him as your heavenly father? He's the giver of every perfect gift. He loves people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. He set his love on them. If he's your heavenly father, then your desires are going to reflect his desires. Are you in that group? Second group in the room is probably people who do care. You really do care, and you really do make plans. You really do have great ideas to help people. You really do have a compassion for the, the church, for his church and the building of the church. But something always comes up, and you, fail to, you always fail to pull the trigger. Something happens, and you can't do it, or you're just constantly getting sidetracked or, si- or blocked. For this group, there's encouragement. We have to move forward just as we always move forward. Where? In the gospel. We do it for love of God, not legalism. We do it in the power of God, not our pride. We do it in the grace of God, not this guilt that we always set on ourselves. And we do it in the fear of God, not the fear of man. You move forward in the gospel. There is encouragement. This is what Paul told the Corinthian believers, a different church during the same period. He was encouraging them to be generous. This is what he said. This is part of his conclusion. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know the gospel. You know how gracious he's been to you in his death on the cross. That though he was rich, yet for who? For your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. This is the gospel, and this is how it should start to set in to our heart. So here's a test. Test your thoughts against the scriptures. Examine your prayer life. Who and what occupies all your prayer time? What is absorbing your thinking? How do you use your resources? How do you use your time? How do you use your money? How do you use your personal goods, your possessions? How do you use those things? Do you view them through the lens of the gospel with genuine concern for others? Do you do that? So generosity starts in the heart. It doesn't start in the offering plate. We're not, obviously, we're not passing the offering plate today, although I joked with Mike about that this week. And he said, that's what assistant pastors are for. Um, <laughs> so the question is, he was joking. Don't worry. We have a sense of humor uh, with each other. Uh, does your care extend beyond the borders of yourself? That's the question. Pray that the Lord will help you see the needs of others. 
and brothers and sisters in Christ. Pray that you would experience the joy of giving, just like the Philippians did. So again, we're talking about a biblical perspective on generosity, God's view of generosity in the body of Christ. Now we arrive at some of the most popular verses in the Bible. Really, Philippians is probably the most popular book of the Bible, I would say. But here are some of the most popular verses in the entire Bible we're about to read. So we'll spend about two hours making sure we understand them. But the second perspective, second perspective is unconditional contentment. Unconditional contentment in verses 11 through 13. This is perspective number two, God's way of viewing generosity. We have to view our union with Christ as our means for contentment, regardless of how wealthy or poor we might be. Viewing our union, our relationship with Christ as the only means for true contentment, no matter how rich or poor we might be. This is the perspective. One of the most interesting jobs I had right out of college was working at a Christian bookstore. You might have known it. It used to be uh, the Blue and White Building on Habana and Hillsborough Avenue. I met Miss Alistair. I've said that before in public, but it was a neat experience. Um, I had the chance to get to know a lot of the customers who came in there. It's, it happens to be in a community that's full of prosperity gospel churches. And when I say prosperity gospel churches, I'm talking about those who view the gospel. They might testify, yeah, sure, Jesus Christ, he, was, he died, he was buried, he was resurrected. Sure, that's great. But the focus of their gospel presentation is on what? What you get out of it. And really, what really is at root is what the preacher gets out of it. That's what the prosperity ministries are all about. And this is what was happening in this community. So I got to talk to a lot of people who were inside of that. Uh, there was one guy who was part of uh, Revealing Truth Ministries, um, which we later, we, we called it Concealing Truth Ministries. Um, <laughs> but he would constantly walk to the store with his family. He, they were poor, very poor. Um, young family, he would walk in. He would often debate me about the prosperity gospel and he wouldn't listen, but he would uh, like to, to argue back and forth. Uh, one day, he drove up in a car. I'm like, okay, what changed? He's like, see that car? God gave me that car. Oh, great. He's like, I was tithing. Okay. You, so you think God owes you something? Oh, yeah. So he, you could throw 11, uh, Romans 11.33 or 11.35 uh, at him. You know, you don't owe anything or God doesn't owe anything back to us. You could throw that at him. You could shoot that at him. You could shoot at him the implications of depravity and sin. And he was bulletproof. You could not get through to him. He would not listen to anything you had to say. He was stuck in this mindset. But after some time, the truth was revealed. I would go around the store, and I would see these DVD cases that were property of the store, and they'd be busted open. You'd see the trash laying around, and the DVD would be gone. That's weird. Who would really, you know, who would do that? Because we didn't really experience much theft there. Happened week after week after week. Finally, we caught who it was. It was the prosperity guy. So we figured maybe God didn't have, get around to paying it back, so he had to go and take what he, what he needed at the time. But it, it, he found out to be false. Found out to be false. The point in saying all this is that in our giving and receiving in the church, we have to have contentment. And that's what's missing quite often. Contentment with our circumstances, whatever we might find ourselves in. So in verse 10, Paul expressed the joy he had over their generosity because they were practicing what he was preaching. Now in verses 11 through 13, he's going to give a really important qualification to what he said. Say, okay, hey, I'm really grateful for what you did, but I have to say this now. You have to understand this. Look down at verse 11 through 13. He said, not that I speak from want. Why? Because 
I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And here's the famous verse, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What's contentment? Jeremiah Burroughs, he's an old uh, Puritan preacher. He wrote a whole entire book on verse 11. So if you want to read a book on verse 11, you can do it. And it's a great book. This is how he defined contentment, and I want to share it with you. He said, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. So it's an inward reality of contentment, satisfaction in Christ, and it keeps going no matter what's happening around you, much like the joy he's already talked about earlier in the chapter, to rejoice always in the Lord. So these verses teach us some things. These verses teach us that we can be content no matter what. And pause and think about that. Can you be content no matter what? This is what Paul has just taught. Now can we do it? Look at these rapid-fire contrasts that he makes, these differences. He says, I can be content in poverty. I'm content in prosperity. I'm content when there's plenty to eat. I'm content when there's nothing to eat. I'm content when I have a lot. I'm content when I have a little. Can we be content? And that's the question for ourselves. Let's ask some more questions. Can we be content in the destitution of poverty? Can we? Listen to Paul's testimony. You can turn there if you want. 2 Corinthians 11. 23 and following. Paul says this to the Corinthian believers. He says, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers from among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, and hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there's a daily pressure on me of all the churches. This is Paul's testimony of hardship, his catalog of suffering. Just in the next chapter, in chapter 12, he says, I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I'm what? Strong. Contentment in Christ, no matter what. So we, can we be content in poverty? That's the question. Could you be content in those circumstances? You think, well, that's my every day. I'm always, I never have any money. But what about the danger of prosperity? Can you be content in the danger of prosperity? Can you be content when you have a lot? Who thinks of prosperity as dangerous? No hands. Okay. The fiddler on the roof. Anyone ever heard that story? It's the story of a displaced, poor old, uh, well, not old, but Jewish man in communist Russia. And there was one goal he had in life, one deep longing, is that he would be a what? Rich man. He wanted to be a rich man. 
That was his one goal. Someone warned him one day. He said, money is the world's curse. And then he said, may the Lord smite me with it, and may I never recover <laughs> if it's a curse. Do we see prosperity as dangerous? Who remembers the story of the rich young ruler? Probably all of us do. He went up to Jesus one day and said, hey, uh, teacher, what good thing shall I do to obtain eternal life? Good question, right? Most important question we can ask. Jesus said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who's good. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Interesting answer. He said, which ones? Jesus said, uh, don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. And all the while, this guy's sitting there smiling. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, uh, don't, uh, or honor your father and mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the, the, the young man said, hey, I've kept all these things. I'm not lacking in any of these things. Then what did Jesus say to him? What did Jesus say to him at that point? If you wish to be complete, do this. Go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Turned out great for the young man, right? He went away sad. He went away grieving. Why? Because he owned much property. He wasn't willing to put Christ first. He wasn't willing to do what's necessary to put Christ first. He wasn't really wanting eternal life, not as Christ had defined it. Finding contentment and prosperity may be harder than we think. Have you ever known anyone who seemed committed to Christ when he was poor, but then got a good job, maybe making 75K a year, 100K a year? Seen that? And they say, Jesus who? And some of us would be even willing to sell him for far less than 75, 35, 40. Kids, would you like it if your parents gave you a lifetime supply of candy in your bedroom? I knew you were going to say yes. Do you think that would be good for the kids? Okay, we have one taker. I think it would ruin the kids in more ways than one. Ruin them. Absolutely ruin their attitude, their health, and everything else. But for many people, suddenly stepping into great wealth or great prosperity can mean absolute spiritual ruin. And Paul says this much to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, but to those who want to get rich, they fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with many griefs. This is what wealth can do to you. This is what prosperity can do to you if you're not viewing it with God's perspective. One Bible teacher said it this way, the secret of contentment is not normally learned in posh circumstances or in deprived circumstances, but in exposure to both. So if you can make it through your times of extreme poverty or extreme prosperity and still find contentment in Christ, I think you're on your way to knowing the secret of contentment. If you can be content in Christ, whether you're rich or poor, financially we're talking about even, and you're situationally, if you can still find contentment in Christ, then you're on your way to finding the secret of contentment. We can be content no matter what because Christ is the secret to contentment. Christ is the secret. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the secret. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Who treats this verse like a blank check? Anyone ever do that before? Just blank, ready for you to write whatever you want to write in there. I can do this. I can do that. I can have status. I can do whatever I want. I can address that 
uh, the person for a date. I can do anything through Christ who strengthens me. And you just fill it in. This verse is not your personal genie lamp. You don't rub it when you get into trouble. Jesus is not our genie. This is not what this verse is about. But what does it do? It answers a lot of questions we have just based on what we talked about. It answers these questions. Because we read this, we hear Paul saying these things. We say, Paul, are you out of your mind? Are you expecting us to go along with what you're saying, being content in all these circumstances? Well, you, you just got through so much greater circumstances. You've been beating times without number. You've been all these sleepless nights without food, all these problems. That's just because you're a super Christian, but you don't expect us to be that way. That's the kind of question we would ask after hearing all these things. But he says there is a secret. I've learned it in really, really, really harsh circumstances, and you can learn it in your more mild circumstances is the idea. Arguing from greater to the lesser, we can do all things through him who strengthens us. So this is the answer. Christ is the answer. We can be content in any and every circumstance because we are united with Christ as believers. I love how one other Bible teacher put it. He put the verse this way. He said, I have the power to face all such situations in union with the one who continuously infuses me with strength. I'm going to read that one more time. He says, I have the power to face, not so much to do, but to face all these circumstances, all these situations. How? In union, being united with Christ, who continuously gives me strength. That's the idea of verse 13. It's not our blank check. This is our secret to being content in whatever circumstance we might find ourselves. Christ. So maybe you've never found this contentment. Maybe you've never been settled in your heart about this. You've never experienced this. If you can't find contentment in Christ, then you might have never met him. You may have never known Christ as your personal savior, as your master. You may have never known him in that way if you cannot find true contentment with him. So go to him today. Maybe you've had it in the past. You've had this contentment, but you've lost it. You're trying to regain it. I know that there's quite a few even in this room right now who even in the last two, three, four weeks, past months, who have gone through enormous struggles, way bigger than I've ever gone through and ever hoped to go through, enormous difficulties. If you're in Christ, if you're united with Christ, I'm not telling you, but Christ is telling you that you can find contentment in him today, whatever is going on. Don't get mad at me. He's telling you you can find contentment in Christ. Saying, what's a 29-year-old telling me this for? He's never gone through anything. Christ is telling you. I'm not telling you. You can find contentment with him. Backing back out. Talking about generosity in the body of Christ. Paul's not saying he didn't appreciate the gift. He's simply trying to tell them as he's thanking them that whether people are generous to us or not, whether we're rich or poor, whatever our circumstances are, we find Contentment in Christ. So to gain God's perspective on generosity in the church, we need to have unselfish concern, unconditional contentment. We have to view the needs of others as more important than our own. We have to go to Christ, our union with Christ. What about perspective number three? It's an unpopular objective, verses 14 through 16. An unpopular objective. We need a gospel-driven perspective on generosity, giving and receiving in the body of Christ, a gospel-driven perspective. 
the gospel motivating us, the gospel driving us along, and nothing else. Read with me in verse 14 through 16. So in verse 14, Paul thanks them for the current gift. He says this. He said, okay, I've, I've told you thank you, and I've told you I'm content whatever happened, but nevertheless, thank you. So he's like he's saying, thanks, but no thanks, but thanks. But he's saying in verse 14, nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. So in other words, my contentment in Christ doesn't mean that I'm not grateful. What you've done is, is a wonderful thing. In verse 15, now he's going to look back in the past and recall how generous they've been in the past. He says, you yourselves know also, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. No church did it. Verse 16, for even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. And we're talking about Philippi. Philippi, at that point, was in Macedonia. What's right next door? Thessalonica. This is the context. So this last statement is significant because was there a church in Thessalonica? Sure there was. What did Paul have to say to that church? They were lazy people, people who didn't want to work for a living, people who just sat back and waited for Jesus to come back. But Paul said, hey, you guys got to get to work. You guys can't be lazy. So was Paul going to get any support from the Thessalonians? No. Did Paul ask for it? No. In fact, Paul said, I'm not going to take it from you. I'm going to show you by my hard work how you can support yourselves too. So he rebukes them. But all the while, maybe small, maybe big, I don't know, the Philippians were sending him gifts, even while he was in Thessalonica. So this is the idea. They were generous to him now, and they were generous to him in the past. He's saying he's grateful to them because what you did wasn't a popular thing. And your material support, whatever those might have been, whether it could have been financial gifts or clothing, food, different things, whatever those gifts were, those material gifts, it had a particular objective. And what was that objective? The preaching of the gospel. They had been changed by the gospel. They wanted to support the preaching of the gospel. So these verses teach us that we give even when it's not easy. There's something you need to know about the Philippian believers. Were they a rich church or a poor church? Perhaps Lydia was part of this church. Maybe she was a little more wealthy. But what about the church as a whole? I think it was a very poor church. This is how Paul talked to the Corinthian believers. Again, this issue keeps coming back up in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 8, 1. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Again, speaking of where the Philippian believers were. That in a great ordeal, I think I have it there for you, in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy, and look at this, their deep poverty overflowed, and their wealth of liberality. For I testify that according to their ability, okay, that's good, and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation, again, fellowship, in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. They were a poor church, but they still gave. They were finding contentment in Christ in their situation, and they were changed by the gospel. And as they saw the gospel being proclaimed and advanced, they wanted to be part of it when their whole being, every part of their life, they wanted to be partners in the gospel. So we also, we give even if we're the only ones doing it. Paul said, after I left Macedonia... No church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. So we're giving even if it's not popular. 
Um, I had uh, a former Bible teacher uh, back in my uh, college days, uh, and many of you do know him, some of you don't, but his name's Carl Martin. Um, he was at a very low point in his life a few years ago. He was dismissed very unceremoniously from his teaching post, just let go without much notice, and he had critical health situation, very poor health at the time. Um, he was in need, didn't have a job, and wanted to continue the ministry, and he was starting to continue the ministry even in London. Um, our church, we decided to send him support. I'm not bragging on us because it wasn't all that much, but we still decided to support him. But something made a big impression on us in that time frame. He came for a visit, and he stood up here, and he read this passage to us and told us that we were the only church, the only ones that helped him, and that made a huge impact on his life. The point of saying all this is you never know how your generosity can benefit other people. You never know. You never know if you might be the only person doing it. There might not be anyone else who's taking care of certain people in true need. I've been overwhelmed this very week, this very week of hearing at least two cases of drastic generosity. People going out of their way, saying, this person has a, a great material need, and I want to support that. No one had to tell them what to do. We didn't have to take up an offering. It was just believers together without any supervision. No one had to tell them to do it. They just decided to do it because they had been changed by the gospel. And they weren't going around reporting it either. This is what we're talking about here. This is generosity in the body of Christ. Not publicity. Not doing it so you can get something back. Not doing it so you can draw people to the church and say, look how prosperous we are. None of that. Doing it with each other. Being generous with each other. And we give it up for the gospel. Verse 15, the occasion of all this is at the first preaching of the gospel, or literally at the beginning of the gospel, when Paul left Macedonia after he planted the church. The preaching of the gospel. That's what changed the church at Philippi. Paul was a man that had been changed by the gospel. This change helped him to keep their priorities straight, the right objective, even though it was an unpopular objective. So our priority and our giving and our generosity should be the advance of the gospel. And this is why the prosperity ministries are so dangerous. People are saying, yes, give to God and he'll give back to you. You can be prosperous. You can be financially wealthy. This is what's so dangerous because somewhere in the process, at the beginning, or maybe it was never even there, they lost the gospel, the true gospel of Christ, that he did come down to this earth to die for wretched sinners like us, people who deserved nothing. He died for us. That's the good news of the gospel because he took our place because we had sinned. We had broken God's law. We were in need of forgiveness. We could not accomplish it on our own. He loved us enough to do that. And the danger of all these things is you lose that if you have the wrong idea of generosity in the church, the wrong idea of getting, giving. It's for the gospel. So again, are we going to pass the offering plate this morning? Say no. We do have goals as a church, goals that every church should have. We would, be, we would love to one day plant another church. This is how we start thinking, planting another church in another city. We would love to send out another missionary. We're supporting one missionary family right now. These are tangible, practical ways that we're trying to advance the gospel. We're not doing anything. We don't have any plans right now. I'm not telling you we're going to start a chart here with the giving going up. But thinking in our heads, how are we going to advance the gospel through this church? That's where the rubber meets the road in these cases. The unpopular objective of advancing the gospel. So what's the logical conclusion of all this? 
Sometimes you hear sermons on giving and you say, okay, what am I supposed to do now? Supposed to, okay, I drove in your car. Am I supposed to give it away now? And I won't have a car to get to work in? Is that the logical end of this message? I'd say no. You no longer are allowed to have any kind of nice possessions. Nothing nice whatsoever. You need to start coming to church with holes in your clothes. Is that what we have to do? Is that the logical end of all this? Does this mean we have to give everything away? Everything you own right now, give it away? Is that the logical end of what we're saying? So I return to the main goal of this message. Adopt God's view of generosity, God's perspective of giving and receiving in the body of Christ. Let it sink into your heart. And then, if it's in your heart, if you have God's perspective, if you put on those Bible glasses and you know how God views generosity, I'm not worried about what you're going to do at that point because you're in your own unique context. You're in your own unique situations. As you see needs, you'll be able to meet those needs. That's the point. That would hopefully be the logical end of this message. So, But what's next? As you apply this this week, we still have three more important points to cover. We'll cover those next Sunday night. But as we take away this passage this week, what are some things we can do? I'd say use discernment. Use discernment. Sometimes helping helps. Sometimes helping hurts. And we never experience that. Use discernment. That kind of thing comes through prayer and using the scriptures and the scriptural wisdom to discern situations, to see what would be best for the person in view. Use God's wisdom. Use discernment. Pray for it. Be grateful. Paul was grateful here. He was, had a, all kinds of gratitude for the Philippian believers. Be grateful. Are we truly grateful when people show us generosity? Are we saying, yeah, it's about time someone got around to seeing my need? Are we truly grateful? Are we truly thankful when people are generous toward us? Another thing is be observant. This week, even, start to be a careful observer of other people's needs. Start to see, okay, there's other people living in this world. I'm not the only person. Other people have needs. And in fact, once you start to see the needs of other people, you see that your needs are quite small. So be observant. Once you see those needs, how about make a plan? We plan for so many things. We plan our vacations. We plan our trips. We plan our, our days at the park. We plan all these things. Why don't we plan to be generous? Why don't we make a plan? Last thing, know Christ. Jimmy said in his prayer, know Christ. If you've never met him, we're not telling you to start giving. We're telling you to meet Christ first. Meet the living Christ. Where are you going to find him? You're going to find him on the pages of scripture. Read about it. Pick up the gospel of John. Look at what the gospel truly is according to scripture. Turn to him. Do it today. Read it today. Consider it today. Pray today. Understand the gospel. Understand that Christ truly has come down to this earth. Christ loves us. And God loved the world in such a way that he did send his only son to save sinners like us, people who have offended God, people who have incurred his wrath. Go to him for forgiveness because you cannot find it on your own. You cannot find it through yourself. Know the living Christ. Believer, maybe he's calling you today. Maybe, maybe he really is calling you today to give everything away. Maybe he really is. The harvest is plentiful. How many workers are there? There's not many at all. I promise you there's not many out there, especially going overseas. It's just not happening anymore. 
Whenever I was younger, I grew up in a Baptist church, missionaries going out, from at least my perspective, pretty frequently. I've been through Bible college now, and I've been through seminary. I haven't heard of any of my classmates talking about going to the field, going overseas. You just don't hear about it anymore. Maybe Christ is calling you to be one of his laborers, to give everything away. Would you be willing to do that? Or does that scare you out of your wits? Consider. This is God's perspective on generosity. It's a sacrifice of ourselves, offering ourselves up to God. We're his slaves. He is our master. We submit to his will. Do you know Christ in this way? Or will you reject him? Know him today. This is God's word. Not what I have said, but what you have read on the pages of scripture. Consider what it says. Get rid of these filthy ideas of prosperity ministries, these filthy ideas that God owes you something. Stop all that. Take God's perspective. Put on God's glasses. Read his word through his lens, not your own. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we do love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for how it exposes our hearts. We're thankful that it points us to Christ and doesn't leave us hopeless. We truly do have hope in Christ. And we truly do have the hope of forgiveness of our sins. An extreme burden, the more we think about it. But we can give it all to him. Because his burden is easy and his yoke is light. I pray that you'd help us, give us the grace, draw us to yourself. And I pray that we would be generous with each other and take your perspective of generosity in your church.